And we'd get right down to it. I was all excited. And they would just contradict themselves, you know, one contradiction after another. And when I pointed out, they'd laugh it off. And I think to myself, you can't laugh that off. This is it. Like, this is the foundation of reality. And you're contradicting yourself. There's nothing funny about that. We need a real theory here to understand what's going on. And eventually it just frustrated me so much that I walked out of a lab, a physics lab, halfway through the lab. I hadn't done any work in the first half. I was just sitting there looking around at the other students and looking at my lab book, thinking to myself, I can't do this the rest of my life there. It's so detail oriented and they don't really want to address the fundamental questions. So halfway through, I walked past my professor, waved to him, he didn't know what I was doing, walked straight over to the philosophy department and got an application to apply to their master's program at CU. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a philosophy professor's frustration with his perpetually tangled headphone cords prompted him to invent what might be the most recognizable mobile phone accessory today. All right, all right. Now, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Apple and Spotify use these ratings as part of their algorithms that determine the ratings on their charts. Ratings help us to build an audience because we get discovered, people find out about us, which then helps us to continue to produce this show. If you haven't Go on ahead and, and given us a review and you think that we're deserving, please, please go ahead and do that. That would be greatly appreciated. This is episode 45, and today's episode is oh so worthy of 45. I want you to think back to 2012. This is the time of the iPhone 3. Marvel's The Avengers has just released in the theaters. The space shuttle Endeavor has had its final flight and Barack Obama is elected for his second term. Homeland, the TV show, is the talk of the water cooler, and Facebook goes public among concerns that they'd be able to make money. Funny to think about now. It is also the year that David Barnett, a philosophy professor at the University of Colorado, launched his Kickstarter campaign for Pop Sockets. I want to take a moment here and call out his Kickstarter video. I have personally been involved in creating and advising on several Kickstarter videos, and I'm still not sure what his campaign was selling or promising, but what I can tell you is that it's one of the best Kickstarter videos I've ever seen. We'll make sure to link to it in the show notes, and I highly recommend you check it out. But let's get back to pop sockets. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if you have a mobile phone, which I know you do, Little side thought, do you know anyone without a mobile phone today? Anyways, I know you have a mobile phone, so I'm going out on a limb and going to say you have either personally used, seen, or know someone who has used or seen a pop socket. You know, those little plastic buttons stuck to the back of a phone or case that open accordion style and have that satisfying little pop when extending and collapsing. And there's something magical, as David will explain, about this piece of plastic and rubber. Hey, hey, and I'm sure it's some sort of advanced material, and I'm using terms like plastic and rubber loosely, just bear with me. 
And there's a draw that's inexplicable. The invention started as a way to solve a very real problem. David's headphone wires kept getting all tangled. And as you hear, anything that either frustrates David or costs him time moves him to action. But while the inspiration was tangled headphones, what he found was that most people were using pop sockets as a grip. Today, pop sockets have shipped over 200 million pop sockets all over the globe, and the business has been structured to serve a greater purpose. David Barnett is the founder and operating CEO today, and this is his story. So David, you're best known for inventing and running with the company Pop Sockets. I think at this point, if you don't know what a Pop Socket is, you're probably living under a rock. They're, they're just about ubiquitous. I'm sure you were hoping they're, they're more ubiquitous, but as far as I'm concerned, they're, they're fairly ubiquitous. Uh, when, when you were a young kid, when you were a young boy, was like eight-year-old David like an inventor and, and into inventing things? Uh, yeah, he was. He was a little hustler, I like to say. So little eight-year-old through, I'd say, 15-year-old David was uh, an inventor. And I, I say more generally a hustler because he was just constantly coming up with, with ways to start a business. So more of an entrepreneur, starting businesses, for instance, a bike repair business, even though I had no idea how to repair a bike. It didn't stop me from opening a bike repair business in my neighborhood. Uh, I had a mixtape business in, I think, fourth grade uh, because my sister's boyfriend had a bitchin' album collection. And I thought I'd take advantage of that by making mixtapes for the other students and selling them. Uh, and then I had a string of other businesses. Oh, the irony. If you still had that mixtape business right now, I think <laughs> that you would have about a billion hipster customers that would would be all over. I, I love the idea of a mixtape business. That's like, that's so great. So where, where'd you grow up? What, what, what was that like? Uh, where'd you grow up? What, what would your parents do for a living? Sure. I grew up uh, southeast of Denver in Colorado, out, in, out on the outskirts of suburbia. So we were on the edges of suburbia. And then I watched it grow as I grew up around us. Let's see, my father was a manager of a retail store called Made F back in the day. It was eaten up by Macy's, which I don't think exists anymore today, but just a, a general uh, retail store. And my mom uh, occasionally worked as a secretary for a CPA firm, but maybe 50% worked and 50% uh, an at-home mom. And so was, would you say by all accounts, your, your upbringing was fairly uh, normal or standard, or was there anything a little bit uh, different about, and by the way, what do you call the outskirts of suburbia? What was that at that time? It was unincorporated Arapahoe County at the time. Um, so it, it wasn't part of any, we were in a county, but not in any city near Cherry Creek Reservoir is is most for those familiar with Colorado, we were right near that reservoir, and houses were just popping up left and right. Douglas County, the fastest growing county in Colorado, didn't exist yet. I watched it come into existence. Sorry, at one point it was the fastest growing county, and now there's just miles and miles and miles of of development and neighborhood after years of of development or, or, or across fields that I used to play in. 
Yeah, I mean, imagine a little bit like the scene from a, a Spielberg movie or like E.T. or like, you know, one of these communities, there's communities sprouting up and there's kids kind of running all over the place. And and yeah. as, as people are discovering uh, suburbia and the new sort of the new wave. And, you know, when you were in middle school and high school outside of being a hustler, what, what, what other interests did you have? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, I was a snake hunter in grade school, so I was in a gang. And our gang uh, rode, rode, rode little dirt bikes and hunted for snakes. And then in middle school, in middle school and high school, I became part of a gang called the After School Sports Dorks. We did not name ourselves that, but that's what one of the jocks on the football team named us in between probably beating me up. Uh, he called us the After School Sports Dorks because my friends and I would get together after school and make up games with basketballs, volleyballs, golf balls, whatever it was. So people would see us around the neighborhoods playing our made up uh, sports games after school sports dorks. That's really what I was uh, <laughs> poker with my friends after school. I wasn't, I wasn't much into school. I have to say um, I had a lot of fun. Yeah. And so you mentioned like, you know, kind of, you get this nickname, the after school sport dorks, and you kind of threw in there that uh, maybe you were getting uh, beat up or chased around uh, from time to time. I mean, was, was high school tough? Were you, were you a little bit in that, that outcast crowd? No, it wasn't tough. I wasn't in the, uh, in the, I went to a large high school, so I had a lot of cliques. Um, but my clique was a mix of, uh, actually, actually athletes. Uh, so they were on some varsity teams, just not not the football player cheerleader crowd. Right. So that's uh, who I'm thinking of as the, as the guy who, who might give me a, a nuggie or a snuggie, <laughs> put, me in, put me in an occasional headlock, uh, maybe give me a nice Charlie horse, <laughs> but no, I could not, I could not by any means say that I was uh, an outcast and had it tough. I had a, a nice group of friends and, and uh, did all right socially. All right. Well, when you're in the, uh, the nice group, the, uh, after school sports storks are hanging out, like, where'd you think you were going to go? Like after, after high school, what did you, did you, you know, I have your, your bio here and I see that you were a philosophy major at Emory, which I find a little bit in contrast when you say you really weren't into school. Cause I don't really think of philosophy majors of not being into school, but we'll talk about that. But I mean, did you, was that your plan? Did you think you were going to be a philosopher? Like how'd you end up at Emory? I thought I was going to be a business person in high school and grade school and middle school, I looked up to my grandfather. He was a successful businessman. He was vice president of a company called Chris Craft. And I just admired him. That was what I thought of as success because he was the most successful person around me, I thought. Uh, and business happened to be what, what he was engaged in. So I figured I'd be a businessman. And I had been a hustler, you know, in my life and an entrepreneur. And then... I went to Emory because I checked it. I checked the box off on the common application where you get to choose from a list of colleges to apply to, and you didn't have to fill out a separate application for each one. That seemed efficient to me. So I just checked off a bunch of boxes, checked Emory, and it was the best school I got into. Uh, and that's why I was at Emory. That's why most of my friends at Emory were at Emory. It's that, it's that we had gotten rejected from the Ivy League schools and the better schools. Uh, and so that was our answer when you asked why we were there. It's a good school, Emory, but um, it was often not people's first choice. And then once I got to Emory, I, I took a big turn away from business, probably from eating hallucinogenic mushrooms, I'm guessing, sitting around with my friends thinking, whoa, I can't be a businessman in my life. What a waste of a life. 
I've got to do something else. I've got to do philosophy or physics or science. Uh, so some kind of epiphany in college about the meaning of life led me away from business and onto a, a pretty significant detour for, for many years before I got back to my roots as a hustler. <laughs> and so your, your, your grandfather worked at Chris Craft, Chris Craft, the motorboat company. Is that, is that the, the right company? That's what, the, that's what that brand is known for. He, he was an executive vice president, so he and, and somebody else ran that company. But really how they made their money was, was in media. So they, they acquired, they sold uh, uh, Warner to Time in the Time Warner deal. Uh, when Time became Time Warner, they sold uh, United Television to Paramount for the UPN network. They owned a bunch of TV stations, radio stations. They owned Chris Craft Boats and sold it off. They owned, was it Piper? Some some aircraft company. They had their hands in a lot of different businesses. It's kind of the era of the multinational conglomerate, huh? And, exactly. and, and, and doing all those kind of different businesses where you're always yeah. like, why, why is Chris Craft selling, you know, packaged foods? <laughs> you know, or whatever they were doing. You know, why, the are they, why are they getting in fights with Rupert Murdoch? I remember there were articles when I was a kid about how Chris Craft was the white knight, like saving... I don't know, United Television, um, or maybe it was Warner Brothers. I think they saved Warner from a hostile takeover from Rupert Murdoch. Um, that was all, those were the exciting days where there were hostile takeovers and, like you said, multinational conglomerates. And, and so what was interesting about that to you? Like when you saw your grandfather, and, and what was his name, by the way? Uh, Lawrence Barnett. It's so. a very, very strong vice president name. I like it. It's a very, it's a very, if I was going to cast a Lawrence Barnett, I, I think uh, that, that would be it. But like, well, uh, what, 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 what do you remember about him? Like, why was that appealing when he had all these other influences around you? He really was the, just, he just seemed successful to me. His wife, by the way, is a, was Broadway, a Broadway star. She starred in, uh, in, uh, she was Sarah Brown and, in Oak, the original Oklahoma on Broadway. She was in Guys and Dolls as one of the main characters. And the two of them, when I visited them, they just seemed successful to me. And it's not that I admired so much what they did. I think just as a child, subconsciously, that was my only option in front of me. Not that, not that the rest of my family members were failures or anything. They just seemed exceptionally successful. And, they, and by the way, they happened to do business. So had they been exceptionally successful and they were both physicists, I would have been a physicist, I think. It was just, uh, for me, what success was, and I was driven to, to, to be successful as a kid. Yeah, and, and you got to Emory, and you talk a little bit about it. It sounds like you went on a bit of self-discovery yourself. I mean, Emory is a pretty big change, I have to imagine, from Denver at the time. And uh, you're, you're at Emory, and you're, you're experimenting. You, you mentioned with some psychedelics. You're, you're deciding what to do with yourself. Like, like why philosophy? Wow. I, I remember I was taking some econ – I was an economics major, and one of my classes was full. <laughs> I don't think I've ever told anybody this story. But I remember standing in front of a wall with schedules and, and lit, course listings. And I had to choose a different class because I couldn't take the class that I had signed up for. And there was a beautiful girl standing next to me and she chose some philosophy class. And I thought, well, that seems like a good idea. <laughs> so I ended up enrolling this, in this philosophy class uh, because she did. And I loved it. It just opened my mind. It stimulated me. I found it so much more interesting than the other classes I was taking. 
So I started taking more and more philosophy classes because I found them just stimulating and uh, uh, intellectually rigorous and, and lively. Uh, so that got me into philosophy. And, and it was a totally different sort of philosophy from the philosophy I ended up doing and, and getting my PhD in. But it still opened my mind to it. Anything happened with the girl? I can't. I, I highly doubt it. So I guess since I don't remember anything, <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> if you can't remember, the answer is always no. So yeah. you're you're at you're at Emory, and you've you've been turned on by philosophy, and you decide to get into that and and put some rigor into philosophy, and 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 then what happened? Uh, where where'd you go from Emory? It's an exaggeration to say put some rigor into it. It woke me up. I liked my classes, but I have to say, when I wasn't in class, I was not studying unless it was an all nighter right before an exam. I was having a lot of fun uh, in college, so, and I don't regret it. I, w- I would do it again. I had so much fun. But when I finished Emory, I thought to myself, okay, now I'm ready to learn and get serious. And I was ready to become a physicist. I wanted to understand the nature of, of reality and the nature of the universe. So I moved back to Colorado where tuition was lower because I, I, my grandfather paid for my college my undergrad, but he was not going to pay for any further school. So I was going to have to pay for my own school, which meant in-state tuition and living in the dorms and being serious. So I went to University of Colorado, uh, put myself in the dorms. I had a lot of friends in Boulder. I stayed away from my friends to be serious. And I took a full load of, of math and physics and chemistry, all the courses I'd need to prepare for a PhD program in physics. And I I just immersed myself in it. So I was a serious student there for a year and a half, a year and three quarters, uh, preparing for a PhD program in physics. Did you understand your reality? Did you, did you find the answer? I didn't. So I, yeah, I found it stimulating. I enjoyed the classes, but uh, I was sitting in a physics lab. I, I ended up debating with my physics professors quite a bit and being disappointed with um, their answers. I felt like we would get, we would start debating, we'd get to the crucial questions about the nature of reality, say the interpretation of of quantum physics. And we'd get right down to it. I was all excited and they would just contradict themselves, you know, one contradiction after another. And when I pointed out, they'd laugh it off. And I think to myself, you can't laugh that off. This is it. Like, this is the foundation of reality and you're contradicting yourself. There's nothing funny about that. We need a real theory here to understand what's going on. And eventually it just frustrated me so much that I walked out of a lab, a physics lab, halfway through the lab. I hadn't done any work in the first half. I was just sitting there looking around at the other students and looking at my lab book, thinking to myself, I can't do this the rest of my life. There is so detail oriented and they don't really want to address the fundamental questions. So halfway through, I walked past my professor, waved to him. He didn't know what I was doing walked straight over to the philosophy department and got an application to apply to their master's program at CU. And did you feel, I mean, it sounds like you felt full of conviction and, hey, like I'm real confident in this decision, or was there at all a little bit of like, oh crap, what did I just do? No, I was confident. I was happy with the decision. And even though I didn't really even know what philosophy was, I had taken an undergrad uh, I'd gotten an undergrad degree in philosophy, but like I said, it was a totally different sort of philosophy. And so what I was about to immerse myself in here at CU, I, I really didn't know. Um, and it was for, totally foreign to me when I started taking these classes. I had no idea what was going on 
what they were talking about, why they were talking about these topics, why they mattered. Uh, it took me a good couple of years to really appreciate what the method was and and why I thought I ended up thinking why why it was better suited to my interests than the methods of of undergrad philosophy. Yeah, and so how'd the rest of that that period of your education go? It was great. Some of the best years of my life. Spent my days thinking about really interesting topics, uh, the nature of thoughts, the nature of consciousness. I also did a lot of philosophy of physics, so I ended up being able to address those questions that that I felt that I wasn't able to address with the physics professors. So interpretations of quantum physics and general relativity, uh, philosophy of math even. Uh, so I, I fell in love with it really, and then ended up pursuing a, a PhD. I went to Cornell, got into their PhD program, and then I transferred to NYU and ended up getting a PhD in philosophy at NYU. And then was that your plan? Did you think, hey, like I'm, I'm getting higher education in philosophy and I'm going to teach it at a university? That's my plan? That is the plan, though. You'll find uh, people in PhD programs in, in philosophy and probably, probably a lot of topics would never use the word teach because it's so the emphasis is so much on research rather than teaching. It's more, I'm going to devote my life to researching the subject matter. And oh, by the way, I'll teach. And that's how I make my money. And, and that's how you keep your job, of course, and get tenures is based on the research, not the teaching. So yeah, I was passionate about the subject matter and passionate about that, a career in philosophy uh, as a professor. What was, what was the subject matter that you were so passionate about that you were like, hey, I'm going to devote uh, my life to this? So... I ended up uh, doing a lot of work in philosophy of language. The found, so that's sort of the foundation of, of language. Uh, in philosophy of language, you don't ask particular questions about, say, English or Japanese or French. Um, you ask more fund, fundamental questions about the nature of language. So you would ask, what, what must any language look like? What are the basic building blocks of a language and what is meaning? So our, our sentences, sentences I'm uttering right now mean something to you. I'm communicating thoughts to you right now. Uh, what are these things, the, the meanings of my sentences? Or I just call them thoughts. They end up, the things we're communicating are actually our thoughts, right? So quickly you move from philosophy of language into philosophy of the mind. And you ask, what is a thought? What sort of thing is it? Uh, and it can't be related to humans either, because you could imagine an alien having a thought or coming down and communicating with us. So it's not, you know, some neural pattern in our brain. It's got to be something more abstract. Uh, and that can then lead to more questions about consciousness and uh, what, what the nature of a conscious being is. So I did philosophy of language, uh, some metaphysics, though I hate to say that word on, uh, outside of the context of philosophy because it can mean lots of things to different people. Uh, but that's generally just the nature of reality. What, what sorts of things exist? Uh, what categories of things exist? Uh, so philosophy of mind, philosophy of language, and metaphysics were my my main areas. Heavy stuff. I like it. I feel like we could spend hours just talking about that, but we'll we'll spare everybody yeah. a little bit. Maybe some other time we'll get into that. I'd love to I'd love to dive deeper. But you're uh, you know you, you you finish up your graduate program at NYU. I'm assuming, and, and correct me if I've got this uh, right or wrong. Uh, you you come back to your, your your one of your alma maters, CU, and you become a professor in philosophy. Is that, is that? Yes, it was, it was a little uh, more of a circuitous route back to CU. I started as a professor at uh, 
Davidson College in North Carolina, uh, and then I transferred to University of Vermont, which I which I loved. I like Davidson too, but really loved University of Vermont. Being in Burlington, it was much like Boulder. Uh, and then I did have the opportunity to come back to Colorado, which I did. So I, I took that opportunity, I think, in around 2006 uh, and came back for a tenure track position here at CU Boulder. And w- w- was that at that like at that moment, are you thinking, hey, like I'm I've done it, like I'm back in Colorado. I'm a professor in the the discipline that, that I'm that I'm want to be in like are you what's going on for you are you content or are you uh are you kind of like getting restless no i was very much content even though it was sad leaving vermont i really loved it there i was happy there but uh colorado was a a place i wanted to end up long term and in academics you don't typically have the opportunity to choose your your destination so for me uh, getting the opportunity to come uh, be a a, a tenured professor at, at Boulder, ultimately uh, be a tenured professor. That was a massive opportunity for me to be back here. And I was very much happy with it. So, and I was still passionate about philosophy too. And are you kind of doing what we today call a side hustle? Is is the hustler in you showing up in different ways before kind of like we get to the, the big idea, but like, are, are you trying other things? No, not at first. I was still... Uh, squarely immersed in philosophy. So I spent, I spent my days, well, geez, when I compare them to today, they were relatively empty, but in philosophy, you know, I only had one, if I got a great night of sleep, which meant nine and a half, 10 hours of sleep, then I, I had about two hours of good concentration time in me the next day where I could really be productive and, and solve problems and think through some issues. And then the rest of the day was mountain biking, playing, uh, preparing for a class, maybe. So it was a, uh, yeah, a, a great lifestyle, but it didn't involve subject matter wise. It didn't involve anything but philosophy. And so you're, you're filling your days with philosophy and you're, you're filling your mind with, uh, expansive thoughts. And let's talk about what's going on with your earbud cords. What's, what's happening? <laughs> So let's see, 2006, I think, is, is when I arrived at CU. I might be wrong, but roughly then. Uh, and then in 2010, I think by 2010, four years later, I had, is this right? I, I think I had secured tenure for myself. So I didn't really have the pressure anymore to, to publish, publish, publish. And I also had a lot of papers that I'd written that I just hadn't submitted to journals yet. So pressure was off uh, in terms of research. I was also starting to burn out. So I, I just was frustrated spending my days trying to convince these other professors of, of things that I thought, I just thought were totally obvious. And that uh, I just I asked myself, do I want to spend my life trying to convince these extremely stubborn people of some simple points? Uh, or could I do something else? So it was already in my mind that I, that I was, I was getting burnt out. And then one day I, uh, got frustrated for the, I don't know, 30th time pulling my tangled headset cords out of my pocket. So I hopped in my car, went to a local fabric store, Joanne fabric to look for a solution, ended up gluing a couple of big clothing buttons to the back of my iPhone three with a couple of little spacer buttons underneath them. So I could wrap my cord around in my headset and prevent the tangle. And that was the beginning of, of, uh, 
the PopSockets journey. Well, that's interesting to me. I mean, a lot of times, you know, I, I, I say that businesses are started uh, one of three ways or all three ways, frustration, inspiration, or desperation. Uh, certainly uh, that story illustrates uh, some of those. But I'm also sensing in your own life, there's this moment where David gets, you know, you take it, you take it, you take it, and then it's just, you can't take it anymore. And you're going to take action. You're going to take a solution. You're not going to allow things to frustrate you. Um, you're you're going to make a change, right? And I think that's really cool that like you're, you're proactive. You know, you're like, hey, I'm not just going to like let this insanity repeat itself. But like walk me through a little bit. Like, you know, I, I love the I love the image of you taking action and going to Joanne Fabrics. But, you know, I think we also need to set the stage a little bit. I mean, you know, ear headphones and earbud headphones, you know, were becoming quite ubiquitous. They they had the long wires. I mean, we're getting to a point, you know, David, we're probably in like you know, five years, you're going to tell the story and kids are going to be like, what are earbud, <laughs> earbud wires? Like, what, what are those? Um, and, you know, so like, I mean, what's going, I mean, are you just pulling it out in a jumble in your pocket and you're just like, like, I mean, are you frustrated? Are you like kind of cursing Apple under your breath thinking like, like, why like, why don't they do this better? I mean, what's going on for you before you really take action and, and get those buttons? Sure. I suppose it was just a, a frustration with a waste, wasted time. So when I notice that my time is wasted more than once on the same problem, I, I tend to take action, whether it's I don't know, organizing my stuff better in drawers so that I can find it next time and not waste time looking for something. And this had just been too many times where I found myself standing picking at this at this bundle of of wires that were tangled and wasting whatever it was two or three minutes before I could even use the headset and then something like you said something just snaps and I thought I can't deal with this anymore it's not like I lived right next to drawing fabric either I lived up in the mountains so I hopped in my car and drove you know 20 minutes to the fabric store without a solution in mind just to kind of walk the aisles and look for a solution for myself This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. And of all places, why Joanne Fabric? Like, I mean, I think like if I had this, you know, and, and by no means am I a man man, so I'm not going to McGuckins or like Home Depot, but I'm probably going to like REI or like I don't know. Like I'm thinking of like maybe a you know th that's probably where I would go. Why? What prompted you to go to Joanne Fabrics and and think of buttons? Sure, I can't remember exactly, but I'd say putting myself some, myself back in those shoes. It would either be McGuckins 
which is the the hardware store that has everything under the sun. It probably has a it probably has a Joanne Fabric somewhere in the store, or Joanne Fabric. I don't know why I started with Joanne Fabric, um, and I didn't have buttons in mind at first. I was just going to walk the aisles to look for something to build. I certainly didn't have in mind that there would already be a, a pre existing solution. So that's why I didn't go to REI or a store, you know, a mobile accessory store that might already have something. I was going to build my own solution. And fortunately, oh my God, this is some of the best fortune I've had in my life. I did not Google this problem. Had I looked for a solution for this online, I probably would have found a YouTube video showing somebody sticking out their pointer finger and their pinky finger and holding their two middle fingers down with their thumb and then wrapping their cord really quickly around the two horns of the bowl that you make when you stick your pointer finger and your, your index finger and your pinky finger out. You quickly wrap your cord around the two, and that's what I ended up doing later on after, the, after I, I used the invention more as a grip. It's a great solution, too. So I would have never invented pop sockets had I seen that video. And so when you're in Joanne Fabrics and you get the button going, was it a bit of a eureka moment or was it like, oh, like, okay, this will work and I'm just going to do this and, and move on with my life? I'd say the latter. It was just, uh, I'm happy with the solution for myself. Not really eureka. Cool. And so you're using the solution, you're wrapping your wires and things seem to be going well. When do you start getting a sense that this might be something that other people want? Not, well, geez, I'm guessing here, but I'm guessing it was a couple of months. What happened was that uh, my friends and family poked fun at me for having these enormous clothing buttons on the back of my little iPhone 3. Remember, the iPhone 3 was tiny compared to current phones, so it was kind of like the Zoolander phone. Uh, and I had these huge inch-and-a-half diameter buttons on the back of it that occupied the entire backside, so it looked absurd. And my friends and family motivated me by making fun of me to start tinkering with mechanisms to get the buttons to expand and collapse so that it would, it would look a little more respectable and, and also have more functionality. So it wasn't until after I did that and prototyped the solution I landed on, the accordion solution, that it occurred to me that I could start selling these. Because when I prototyped it, I at one point uh, ran into some kids in the quad of, of CU Boulder out in this big grassy area. I ran into some kids, maybe middle school age, and I uh, showed them a prototype and their eyes just bulged out. Their jaws dropped open. They went into this trance of, I have to have that. And that's the moment that, that I thought to myself, oh God, I could sell a ton of these, or at least, at least a few thousand. Well, I want to thank you for bringing up Zoolander. It's one of my favorite all-time movies. I'd say it's a top five comedy of all time. So, so thanks for that. Just a little bonus. But uh, thinking about this, like, how do you go about? You're a CU professor. You're not a prototyper. You're not someone that designs, you know, molded plastic goods. Like, how did you go about prototyping this and and prototyping that according design? Sure. So I I went into Ali. Baba. And, uh, I found, I just picked randomly. I don't recommend that people do this. I randomly found a, a prototyping group and the guy's name was Cade Wu. And this guy, Cade Wu 
would accept my files. So I, ta- I also taught myself 3D CAD software called SolidWorks. And I started making models of these accordions. I actually first tried hiring an engineering student, but that lasted a couple of weeks, maybe a few weeks. So frustrating uh, having to, to tell somebody, make this little change, make that little change, and then wait a few days for the changes. So instead, I just taught myself and started cranking on, on the software. And I would send these models off to Cade Wu in China. And I believe two or three weeks later in my mailbox, I'd get, I don't know, 30 or 40 prototypes from different models. Maybe I'd send him six, mo- six different models and he'd send me um, two or three, four uh, of each of these models. And they were, they were terrible, I can tell you that. It was terribly disappointing when I received them. They did not function at all. They didn't expand or collapse. Um, they were nothing close to the final product. And so what do you think? Are you like, this is a way, like, maybe I'm just wrong. Is this, is this a waste of time? Like, this is just not. It's odd because I have fond thoughts of Cade Wu. Um, I really like Cade Wu. And yet Cade Wu caused me so much suffering and pain. So I have mixed feelings about Cade Wu. On the one hand, I, I have fond thoughts of him. On the other hand, he sent me off on the wrong path again and again. I didn't realize it for at least a year but he was telling me that he was using certain materials, for instance, polyethylene or polypropylene. And so I would get these prototypes and I think, ah, my design is bad. I need to redesign it. And I totally redesigned that accordion again and again and again, uh, based on these prototypes. And after about a year, I figured out he was lying to me about the materials he was using. Um, I'd say use Santaprene 8905, some material I had researched, he'd say, okay, Santaprene 8905, and he'd send it to me. A year later, I realized he couldn't possibly be using these materials. It just doesn't work. You, you can't use these materials with the process that he had, a prototyping process. And so looking back, I had, I had just assumed again and again that my design was off. But in fact, the material was, was wrong. I don't know where I'd be today if he had been honest with me, what, what the pop socket grip would look like today it might be totally different the design and how did you find out he was lying like what you know what, what do you know about these materials uh i ended up hiring a design firm when i had a kickstarter campaign in 2012 uh, i hired a design firm called spec design in the bay area to help me design the case so the body of the case i had worked quite a bit on the accordion uh, so the main component and I worked with them and they started working with Cade Wu and they were getting these prototypes. We were getting them, you know, every few weeks and they didn't notice he was lying either. But then at some point, somebody at the, at the design firm, an engineer made some comment to me and it all just, I had an epiphany. I thought to myself, holy cow, this guy's been lying to me for a year. Um, they didn't even notice it. You can't use these. You can only use the materials I was requesting in injection molding. And that's just not for prototyping. And it takes months and months to build the tooling. And then you inject the hot, you know, molten plastic into these tools. The materials just can't be prototyped the way he claimed to be prototyping them. So I inferred that he was using something called a cast urethane. And that that's what made up all the samples he had been sending me. Did you guys have it out or what happened there? No, I still liked Cade Wu for some reason. <laughs> um, I still like Cade Wu to this day. I guess I maybe that's maybe that's one of my faults is that I'm pretty charitable. And I thought to myself, uh, okay, what he was doing is he was just trying to find a cast urethane 
that mimicked the material I was requesting most closely. So if I asked for a Santaprene 8220, he would look up the specs of the material and think, okay, I'll use this uh, urethane and it will most closely resemble that. And that's what he always did, I'm guessing. So it sounds like you're investing some significant money. I mean, you're, you're hiring uh, design students. You then go get a design firm in the Bay Area, which I am assuming just based on what I know about design firms in the Bay Area is not cheap. Uh, like, how much money are you investing in this? And like, why are you investing in this? Like, what's your thought? Sure. I was burning through cash. Uh, by the time I had a Kickstarter campaign, I think I asked for maybe $12,000 in the campaign. Back then, the campaigns were much smaller than they are today, most of them. And maybe I ended up raising 18000 or something. I burned through that in a few weeks. So it's not as if I hoped that that would really uh, fund the whole project. It was mostly a PR activity. But I had, let's see, I had spent my savings. I was starting to go through some of my retirement. And then fortunately, my house had burned down at the end of 2010 in the Four Mile Fire here up in Boulder, a big fire that took about 240 homes, uh, burned my home down. And just a couple months before it burned my home down, I had raised my limits on my insurance uh, suspiciously. But I raised I raised my limits and it triggered a massive increase in the um, limits for my contents. So after my house burned down, I was sitting on a really nice insurance package. I used that money for pop sockets instead of replacing the contents of the house. So I lived in an empty house and then I, I got married and lived with, with my new wife in, in the rebuilt house. And it was mostly empty for years until I, I got some money from the pop sockets business. But I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars ultimately on this business. When you ask why, I don't know. I guess I was obsessed. Uh, I wanted to see it through. And had I lost everything, I would have been fine. I would have just tried something else after that. So <laughs> I can only imagine uh, what your fiance is thinking. I mean, is she totally cool with this? It like is like that going well or is there some dissent like like hey i'll marry you and live in an empty house while you burn all this cash on a plastic thing for your phone it depends on whether she's going to listen to this interview the answer to that question i'm assuming she's not in which case the real answer is no she was not nowhere close to uh, being okay with this she said she married a philosophy professor and then um, she felt tricked. She got, she got somebody who was obsessed with starting up a business, spending enormous amounts of time starting a business while being a professor. Um, so she didn't get the time that she thought she'd have with me. Since my summers were occupied on the PopSockets business, I spent all of our money on PopSockets. Um, and she thought it was a ridiculous product, as did all my friends. They, nearly all of them just thought it was silly. So the answer is no, she was, she was not with me on that one. Got it. Like, yeah, I, I wouldn't think so. But uh, <laughs> in businesses like this, a lot of times not. And so when you're doing the Kickstarter, is PopSockets the name at that time? Wow, that is a good question. I'm pretty sure the answer is yes. Uh, it's, I'm 95% confident that it was called PopSockets by that point. It started off as iButtons. And fortunate, I never really liked that name. I came up with that name. Uh, it was also a term of affection. 
hi buttons. So you could say that to somebody, hi buttons. And it's just a sweet thing to say. But then a big company threatened to sue me because they had a product called an iButton. Uh, and they did not like the fact that I got the iButtons.com URL. So um, I had them give me about $20,000, which I needed in order, in exchange for giving up that name and using a name that I liked a lot better, which was PopSockets. Where'd that name come from? That came straight from my wife. That is her big contribution to PopSockets. Maybe we had toyed around with sockets or pop. One, one or the other was in the air, and then she put it together. See? Yeah, she, she was behind you. She got it. Like, you know, it's like, I it came up with the name. She's good for something, for sure. <laughs> and so you fund your Kickstarter, and it's a eight, to the tune of $18,000, and I'm assuming you're just like, it's easy street. You're just moving product, and you have no problems. Is, is that how it goes down? That's right. Within a year, I was a billionaire. Uh, didn't lift a finger. Um, <laughs> so no, it was uh, it was rough. It is much easier today, for sure. Uh, I was running out of money. The eighteen thousand was nowhere close to really fund this. I eventually found some investors around town, just through through people that I met. Um, so these were strangers who who had faith in the idea when I'd pitch it to them. Raised a few hundred more thousand dollars as I was starting the business. I didn't launch until 2014, two years after the Kickstarter campaign. I had massive manufacturing problems. That's partly why I didn't launch uh, until 2014. The factory just couldn't get the case right. It was originally a case with two grips that expanded and collapsed. But and pretty it, much in the original form, that or the the common form that we know it as now, which is like the the button with the accordion. Was it just that with the case? Yeah, it was two of those. So it's the Kickstarter. If you look at the Kickstarter campaign, it was that um, a case with two integrated uh, pop sockets grips that expanded and collapsed. And the factory I chose just couldn't make a case. It had an overmold, so a soft material that was molded to a hard hard plastic, and they they really just didn't know how to do it. And month after month after month passed by. They had to throw away the tools because they had revised them so many times. So and then uh, version. <laughs> the version of the iPhone changed by the time we had got the case right. That was an old version of the phone. I think we were at the iPhone 5 by the time I actually launched the company out of my garage in 2014. And I had by that time developed the standalone grip that, that has been the popular product. Yeah. And what was the insight on that? Like, what was the big aha moment that less is more? Sure. It, it likely, likely has its source in, in feedback from my students. So when I was a professor, I, I handed out some cases, some prototypes of the original product to my students. And by the way, they would all, when I would ask them, would any of you use this product uh, to keep your headset uh, tangle free? And nearly all of their hands would, would, would go up in the air. So I finally got some samples. I handed them out. And then I watched them over the course of uh, a few weeks to see who would, who would stop using the product, how many of them would stop using the product, those who kept using it, what were they using it for? And I noticed the ones who kept it on were not using it for headset management. They were using it for the grip function and the stand function, but mostly the grip function. And yet the grip was not in an ideal location. Uh, there was one grip that was too high and one grip that was too low because I had two of them on the back so that you could wrap your headset around them. And that made me think, look, I should invent just a standalone product that can be placed ideally for the grip function. 
And when I launched the Kickstarter campaign, I ended up licensing the original invention with a case to Casemate out of Atlanta and let, thought, well, they can run with this while I develop the standalone product that, that was not under license. So that's what I did. They worked on the case for six months and then they ended up never launching a case. And in that time, I developed the standalone product. And at that point, did it just take off? I mean, I, I have this recollection that, you know, at one point it was like, I didn't know what pop sockets were. And then they were everywhere. Like they were just like everywhere, like, and people had them and they just became, they just became part of, you know, popular culture. I mean, it, it, is that the way it felt for you or was the getting the standalone product to get traction? Was that, was that a, a challenge? It certainly took some effort that first year. I mean, we flipped the switch um, and turned on the website. Uh, I had no marketing dollars. I had no experience, no connections to retailers. So I just turned on a, a Shopify website. I hired a couple of of uh, people who had been doing some landscaping. So they were in my garage, Little Big Hands and War Bear, these two huge guys, uh, were sitting in my garage ready to fulfill orders. And I flipped the switch and nothing happened. Of course, we got no orders. We got no orders the next day or the next day or the next day. And I thought to myself, huh, somehow we've got to get the word out that this exists. And uh, I went to a promotional trade show in Las Vegas just by chance, I had a friend who offered to share a booth and it was a huge hit there. So that was my first break. Uh, these are people looking to put uh, logos on products and give them away for free. And it was clear to the distributors at this trade show that the PopSocket Grip was a perfect billboard for your, for your logo and for getting impressions. So I had a big crowd around my booth. And over the course of the next four or five months, I ended up selling batches of 3,000, 5,000, 7,000 to T-Mobile, Yahoo, you know, these big brands through distributors that then got them into the hands of thousands of people. And then I started seeing the traffic uh, come to the website because we had a, a, I don't know if it's a critical mass, but we had enough of them out there in public that word of mouth was spreading. Uh, and then two other things were happening at the same time that year. Celebrities somehow got a hold of them the first year in 2014. To this day, I don't know how, but Gigi Hadid, Ryan Seacrest, I remember Woody Harrelson's wife somehow, I got word that she was calling it a life changer from somebody that heard that. Uh, so they were showing up in People Magazine and on social media using the grip, and we saw a hotspot in LA on our website, customers around Los Angeles. And then third, we were planting uh, these grips in middle schools in Colorado. So we were encouraging these schools to use them as fundraisers. And that started a third flame, you could say, uh, as the middle schoolers took to this product and started telling their friends about it. So those three elements came together. And by the end of 2014, we were seeing some really nice growth uh, month over month. It was start, you were starting to see that hockey stick growth. And then we saw about 10 times we were selling. Each month, we were selling about 10 times what we were that month the prior year for the next couple of years, 15, 16 we were named the fast, second fastest growing company in the U.S. in 2018 with a growth rate of 72,000% over three years. Uh, and it was mostly just a viral phenomenon over those, few, those first three to four years, I'd say, and then exploded into retail uh, in, I think, 2016 and 17. So over the course of a few years, what you described is correct. Yeah. And, and prior to that, I mean, really before this, this validation moment where you go to the, 
trade show and, and for promo products and people are like, okay, like, and, and I have to imagine that like when you got those first orders, you're like, all right, I'm on Like, I'm not crazy. But so, but you know, prior to that, I mean, are you thinking of giving up? Are you thinking of, of like, Hey, like I have sunk enough money into this. I have put enough energy into this. This just may not happen. No, I hadn't considered giving up. There was one moment that I vividly recall where, where I did for the first time feel that I might, that I might be forced to give up. So it was uh, when we had an office on, on Pearl street in, in Boulder and we received a shipment of about 30,000 grips and packaging. It was maybe the third major shipment we had received. We weren't in any retail stores yet. So we were selling on the website and promo and they were all defective. This was the third time in a row. So I had never gotten pure high quality product. I had always received shipment of defective product. The gel was defective on the first 30,000 I received. My friends and I had to pull off. It's tough to get gel off these. We had to by hand pull off 30,000 gel uh, stickers and put new gel on the bottoms of them. But this third shipment, the packaging was all just blowing out and the plastic from the accordion was sticking through the gel so far that it wouldn't, um, it hit the back of the phone before the gel did. So the grip would just fall right off the phone. My stomach just sank when I opened up the shipment. Uh, there was $8,000 in the bank account. I probably owed $30,000 and that was it. I had no more cash. I didn't have any investors lined up to give any more money and we were sitting on defective products. So I remember taking a walk on Pearl Street thinking to myself, this is not good uh, and it could be the end of us. But here you are today and you're the, <laughs> you're the CEO still of PopSockets and give us a sense of what PopSockets looks like today. Like how many employees and like approximately how many units are going out uh, at this point? Sure. Uh, well, pre COVID we were about 300 employees headquarters in Boulder. We have a design office in San Francisco with about 20 people, uh, an office in Europe, uh, offices in Singapore, Seoul, Korea, Tokyo, Shanghai, Hong Kong. We now have an office in Colombia and Bogota. Um, so we're, we're a global company now. We've sold well over 200 million units. I'm guessing now probably closer to 300 million. I haven't checked in recently, but uh, you know we're going through a, a high volume of grips uh, each week. Uh, Post-COVID, we have fewer people. So we, we unfortunately did have to lay off quite a few people um, furlough quite a few to preserve our cash when COVID hit and the stores all shut down globally. We are coming back from that though. We're, we're doing quite well and we're hiring again. Uh, so that should give you a sense of the size and, and we have ambitions to be far bigger, mostly so that we can um, make a, a more positive impact. We have a Poptivism program that's really important to me and the brand that gives back to whatever charity our consumers chooses. Choose. <laughs> So you can come design your own grip on our website and tag any charity and half of the sale of that grip will go to the charity. Uh, and the bigger we are, the more we can invest in programs like that. Yeah. And I, and I, I was planning on asking you about, there. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? I mean, why, why, why Poptivism? How, how do you say that again? Like, it's like a tongue twister. Poptivism. Kind of Poptivism. like act, activism yep. with pop at the beginning. Yeah. I, I just need to like practice it. Poptivism, Poptivism. So, uh, you know, like why, like why use, the thing you built for that. Sure. 
So my uh, one of my original goals when I decided to commercialize this invention was to um, generate wealth for myself so that I could use that wealth for good causes. I personally care about animal welfare issues, you know, helping to end factory farming and uh, also climate change, uh, particularly as it, as it relates to these the, the former issues. Uh, so those are my personal causes that I would support. But I, I realized a couple of years into business that all of the employees wanted to make a positive impact and the company is probably positioned better than myself to make that impact. Uh, and at that point, I created a department of do-goods. I hired a director of do-goods. Her sole responsibility was to do good. Uh, she teamed up with some nonprofits that support people with mobility issues, Parkinson's, ALS, arthritis. Uh, we raised money for these organizations that support people with these uh, challenges. And then we got tens of thousands of grips into their hands because it makes it easier for them to hold their devices, uh, the grip. But we thought we could make a bigger impact if we open this up as a platform to everybody and all charities. And that's Poptivism. So Poptivism is a platform that encourages people to uh, make a positive impact by designing their own grip. So you can come on, you can do it right now. You just go to our website, you can design your own grip. You tag a charity, a 501c3, and uh, the grip will go live maybe in a week. 50% of all the sales will will go to that charity and you can start seeing the impact you make right away. That's incredible. And do you ever like just like look around and you know as i heard you talking about how many employees you are are employing and 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 where you're located globally and poptivism and like do you ever just look around like this is a i i created this and i don't mean it i don't mean it like in a in a in a vain way or an arrogant way but like i i created this out of an idea and that idea was like these little plastic things that you stick on your phone, you know, like, like it, it just must be an incredible feeling. Yes. It's surreal. It used to be more surreal. I spent uh, a decent amount of time standing in this one office room of one of our offices. It had a glass wall overlooking the warehouse, the production facility. And I'd look out there and think, this is just insane. I mean, it's, it's like a crazy dream. All of these people are working on this little do that that I created in my living room with all this hard work. And then when I would travel to China and I'd walk into these factories where there were hundreds of people, just lines and lines of people sitting working on this product, there were huge crates out in the parking lot, just giant stacks and stacks of boxes with tractors and, and these trailers coming to pick them up. I thought, this is just insane. It's so crazy. Uh, eventually, I, I came to accept it. So the, the surreal nature of it uh, started to fade, but I still have that sensation, especially when we hire really talented people who have these uh, amazing backgrounds. I think to myself, how did we get to this point where we could attract talent like this, um, all from just messing around on the computer in my living room so many years ago? What do you think it is about the the grip, the pop socket that just is, that just speaks to people that just says, hey, like, I want that because I, I do think there's something there's something special about that inanimate object. Sure, uh, all of our products we 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 try our best to include three three ingredients, which the the original product has. One is the empower empowering quality, so it just makes using a phone so much better. Uh, the second is the fun or or magical feature 
that it's surprisingly fun and surprisingly useful. I mean, look, you've got the most valuable company in the world, or at least it was at one point, Apple, creating this device that has a massive flaw. You can't hold it. Um, it's just an awful experience. Once you've used a, a pop socket grip for a couple of weeks, if you try to hold an Apple phone, it's almost comical. It's just an awful, awful experience. So I think it is sort of a magical experience when you start using this and you think, oh my God, what a much better experience this is, even if you didn't think you needed it. And then third, it's the expressive uh, feature. People love to express themselves with grips. It's a much easier way than changing up their cases to put a different style on, put a different statement on like a bumper sticker um, or a different uh, utility piece. So you could have lip balm on one day or a little storage for, for something that you want to keep with you one, one day. Uh, we have a bunch of other functional items coming out too. Yeah. And we'll make sure to link to all that in the show notes. And David, as we come to a close here, we're, we're coming up on our time. I have two final questions for you. And the first is what's the future look like for you and pop sockets? Sure. Well, I'm staying with PopSockets. For the future, I'll be the CEO. Uh, I have been working hard recently to uh, rebuild our, our teams post-COVID and post a big transition with leadership. Uh, we intend to build a, a strong uh, global brand that makes little life changers. So uh, all of our products, we think, will, will increase people's happiness, even if it's just a little bit every day. And Poptivism, too, these programs we think of as little life changers. We're not curing cancer, but everything we do, we hope, makes people just a little bit happier. Uh, and you'll see in two to three years, you'll really see that the brand we have here in the U.S. will start spreading. Even though we've been international for a few years, our brand strength, I think, will will start catching up to the U.S. and will be a a significant global brand uh, making a positive impact every day. So David, if that high school version of you, that high school David that was in the after school sport dork crew ran into you today, what do you think he'd say? <laughs> That's really funny. I have a video of this that I can share with you. <laughs> we had, sorry, there was an award ceremony for some entrepreneurship award, I think that I won and I couldn't be there. So we made a video, an acceptance video. And we had a boy who looked kind of like me when I was a kid, an after-school sports dork, and he accepted the award. And part of what he said was, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe someday I'll invent something, something kind of useful, um, maybe that helps you listen to your music better. So what would he say? He, he was probably cocky. He'd probably say, yeah, I knew this. <laughs> I'm a little disappointed in you, but I thought this would happen. Whoa. And that is David Barnett, the founder and CEO of PopSockets. I still can't wrap my head around a little plastic extendable button becoming such a part of our culture, employing 300 people, and continuing a movement all over the world. This is the power of entrepreneurship. Literally thinking of an idea, imagining something that never exists, and then making it a reality putting it out into the world, and changing the world. David Barnett, and I say this very seriously, is changing the world with pop sockets in a way that will have an impact forever. Whether it's bringing joy to someone with mobility issues, assisting in a selfie that captures a special moment, 
or using poptivism directly to give back. He is making a difference. And I keep coming back to something that Jeff Hoffman, co-founder of Priceline.com and our very first guest on Baby Got Backstory said, entrepreneurship is not the purpose, it's the tool. We'll be linking to all things Pop Sockets in the show notes, so please check them out. And thank you again to David Barnett and Pop Sockets. We can't wait to see what the future holds for you and your team. I know it's going to be something big. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 